0: If you'd open your Bibles to Second Thessalonians, Thessalonians chapter 3, let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, again we thank you so much for this privilege and opportunity we have to continue our worship as we open your word and as we read and as we seek to understand those things that you have reserved for us. So, Father, we ask that you would guide and direct our thinking. We pray, Lord, that you would also enable us to um, absorb these truths in such a way, Lord, that we'd be able to easily apply them to our living and that we may become more like your Son Jesus Christ. As always, Father, we are grateful for your word, grateful, Father, for your presence here. We <coughs> thank you, and we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Second Thessalonians chapter 3. It's kind of loud to you there. It's kind of loud. Sounds like it's blaring to me. The wind is blowing the hair. No. Huh. Second Thessalonians chapter three, beginning in verse five. Now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly, and not according to the tradition which he received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we were not disorderly among you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil night and day. That we might not be a burden to any of you, not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example for you to follow. And again, remember that as we have been emphasizing, talking about discipleship and the New Testament motto, which is really to imitate others. Again, in the Amplified, it reads, for you yourselves know how it is necessary to imitate our example. For we were not disorderly or shirking of duty when we were with you. We were not idle. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and struggle we worked night and day that we might not be a burden or impose on any of you for our support. It was not because we do not have a right to such support, but we wish to make ourselves an example for you to follow. So again, as we have in the past looked at the definition Uh, or a description of a certain kind of forager ant that was written about in a scientific journal, uh, making the necessary changes so that it is more applicable to us. Let me read to you once again uh, that description. That knowledgeable Christians should directly lead less informed or new believers to discover truths about God and living life found in reading, studying, and applying the word and truths also found in solid teaching and reading by, and reading sources by the excruciating slow and time-costly process of living and growing in life as partners or in conjunction with each other. The one being disciple obtains knowledge that he would not have uh, had had he not been tutored or would have obtained after many years of toil. Discipleship is a form of social learning. So by teaching this way, it requires the disciple to change his behavior and acquire some skills or knowledge faster than he would have independently. It should be known that the discipler will be inconvenienced from time to time. And so there was a description that was given about these forager ants and what they called their tandem running and how they actually teach other ants, uh, leading them to new food sources, how to find food sources so that the colony can continue to flourish. And it's just a great, I believe, example uh, of how we are to be involved in each other's lives and how we are to approach discipleship. Again, discipleship basically is simply this. It's growing in, matur- in maturity, and it takes place by teaching and through life transformation. And the way that takes place is by having this rela- an ongoing relationship with other believers in the church. Last week, we looked at a couple of things. We looked at both the life of Paul and the life of Jesus and how they were involved in discipling others. And we saw that primarily, the main thing I wanted to emphasize with Paul was his attitude, that even though he was an apostle and he was one of the authorities in the church, he treated all other believers as equal in the body of Christ, that they were on a journey together to seek to be like the Lord. And of course, as a result, he was willing to invite people to imitate him. Again, not to follow him as being the all-great leader, but the idea was to imitate they live their lives the way he was living their life, then they would be growing in their relationship with Jesus Christ. That is really probably the main thing that we want to pass on when it comes to our relationship with others. As we mentioned many times, that is one of the main responsibilities of parents is what we want to pass on to our children is how to walk with the Lord. And even though in that there will be a lot of instances where we will Teach them how they should behave and how they should react and respond. The main foundation for that is that they have a growing relationship with God. And so because of the close association that's normal in a family, that's why even though it is important for parents to read the Bible to their children, it is more important for your children to see you reading the Bible for yourself. That's the most important thing. You may fail at times to read the Bible to your children. But the greatest failure would be if they never see you reading the Bible. Because no matter how many times you read the Bible to them, eventually that does stop. And if they never see you reading the Bible for yourself, then you are teaching them that the Bible is only for children. And you are teaching them the Bible is not for real life. And you are teaching them that we're not dependent upon the Word of God. That's what you're teaching them. And we don't want to pass that along. And if by chance you have, even though there may not be a simple fix in affecting um, uh, what has occurred since that time, you can let them know, say, look, I need to ask you to forgive me for something because I know that you did not see me reading the Bible for myself. And you ask them to forgive you. That shows them that you have a great loyalty to Christ and you have a willingness to admit failure because you love Christ and love them. We just can't say, oh, well, it's too late and just feel guilty. We can do something about that. And then we can try to encourage them to read the Bible for themselves. And we do that for reading the Bible for ourselves and then maybe sharing with them what we've been reading or how we are doing with our reading or whatever it happens to be. It's important for that to be done. That's discipleship. And that's what we do with our children, with our grandchildren, or with other believers in the church. There needs to be that kind of encouragement uh, and help with each other. Remember that if we do not set the pattern for, of our own life before others, there's no other pattern we can set. We can't set any other pattern than our own pattern. We need to take on that responsibility. Remember that if we just describe how Jesus or Paul lived, that is insufficient. That's insufficient by itself. It is never enough. The same way that when, when we have our kids coached in sports, if, if your kid has a gift for a sport or you just want your child to improve, if you have someone coach them, the goal is not for the coach just to tell them what they need to do. What, the, what a good coach does is he, hey, or she helps show them. Now I know there may be some sports that may be a little difficult, because if your kid's in gymnastics and the coach is 60, they may not be able to show them any longer how it's done. Uh, but we do have an amazing thing called DVDs, and so they can take them through that. But the point is, is that it, there's an example for them to follow. And so that, that needs to be done. Without that, uh, instruction by itself is insufficient. We also noted how, with Jesus, uh, his choice of disciples. That first of all, he chose them. They didn't choose him. And even though that was unusual back at that time for, as to how uh, rabbis and different individuals kind of collected a, a gathering or a following, we saw that that really is a, there's a biblical pattern there that we are to follow. And so we should not be, Uh, ashamed or afraid or embarrassed to to ask an individual if we can disciple them just tell them i want to influence your life just like with your kids you can just tell them i you know i just so you know i want i want to influence your life because i know this is important uh and that's what we do and so there's an openness and an honesty but we don't just sit and wait for someone to come along now if you're super super shy you can do that but if someone comes along and asks you don't you dare turn them down uh, because that opportunity doesn't just come out of the blue. But when it comes to the to the actual men that Jesus chose, and we went through a little bit of detail as to the kinds of individuals they were, what it should at least do for us is we need to, we need to to apply the way, or, or I guess the the who of Jesus chose. The application to our life is that we need to get rid of any and all preconceived ideas as to who or what makes for a successful candidate for discipleship. Just save yourself a bunch of trouble and don't try to figure out who would be a good disciple and who won't. Just disciple who's nearby. Just disciple those that you meet. Just disciple your children and your grandchildren. Just go about doing it and don't try to figure out who you think the best candidate's going to be. We need to dump our prejudices in this area. Christ can change any man or woman. He has done so. He will continue to do so. And so we cannot and we should not try to engage in what I call predictive choosing. But when it comes to that, there's something else that Jesus began to impress upon those He discipled, and that is this. That's the cost of being a disciple. Jesus never hesitated to tell those who would be His disciples that such a decision would cost them really everything they possess and that the relationship that they were going to have with him was to supersede all other relationships. That it would involve suffering, rejection, and self-denial. Now, that doesn't mean that we present a negative, uh, as negative as possible a picture to others that we're going to mentor a disciple. But we do want to be honest and truthful. We're not trying to dissuade them from beginning, but we do want to present an accurate image of what it means to follow Christ. And in the culture we live in, we have to be careful to let, to, if we imply to other individuals, look, if you just let me disciple you, your li- I can show you how you grow in Christ and your life will just be wonderful. Okay, don't say that. You can say that your life can get better, but then you need to qualify what that means. Because if you just tell an individual, then your life will just be wonderful. What they hear you saying and what you mean can be two entirely different things. They're thinking their life will suddenly become easy they think that their life every day will be a party and every meal will be a banquet. And if that doesn't happen, then you've lied to them. Or maybe Christ is insufficient. And so we need to be careful when we say things. Remember I've told you before how sometimes well-meaning people will go into the jail and show the gospel and then tell the inmates that if they give their lives to Christ, that the Lord will fix everything. Don't say that. Because their, their first thing they think of is the Lord's going to fix my case. And what they think that means is they make that the Lord's going to fix my case by making it go away. And I don't have to face prison time. That's not what the Bible promises anywhere. And so we want to make sure that we clearly communicate to others what it is we mean by that. And so here we want to make sure we give the the same uh, truth that Jesus gave to his disciples. But along with that, there is a cost to discipleship in the sense that it's going to involve suffering and rejection and self-denial. Oftentimes, if you were to look up, a, a uh, uh, there's a question you can ask if you go on the internet and say the the, the top 100 uh, best books in Christianity or the or the 100 most recommended books in Christianity, uh, there are certain books that always make the list. And one of them is The Cost of Discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in, the, in one of the main emphasis of the book that he wrote, it's a pretty good book. He describes the difference between what he calls cheap grace and costly grace. And he believes that that makes a huge difference in the life of the individual. And he was convinced that during his time, which was, he lived in Germany during World War II, and he was very much aware of what was happening in the church as Hitler rose to power. Uh, he was one of those individuals who was uh, heavily involved in the resistance uh, to Hitler. But he, it seemed to him that many Christians... We're content to accept a grace that doesn't require any sort of sacrifice or transformation on the person's part. In other words, I can become a Christian, and that's it. I believe in God. It has no effect on my life. I I receive what Christ has done, and that's it. And he wanted to emphasize that that is not what grace is about. He said grace should be transformative It does more than forgive sin. It should not be used as an excuse to sin. And it is certainly not cheap because our grace was bought with the highest price. Cheap grace is a justification of the sin without the justification of the sinner. It is the grace we bestow on ourselves. And so what he was encouraging others to do was to go back to our understanding of what is grace when we speak of God's grace, God's goodness to us, God's goodness to us in salvation? What does that really mean? What is that about? And what he saw during his lifetime was just large numbers of individuals we'll call them Christians, maybe some were, maybe some weren't, but he saw large numbers of Christians who were willing to compromise. Many things that he thought the Bible forbid as they kind of went along with Hitler and a lot of the things that he was doing. There's a a very disturbing story that I read once. There's a book uh, written by, um, oh, good grief. I hate that when I do that. I should have wrote it down. Anyway, uh, the book is called Hitler's Cross. And in the book, it talked about that, you know, when the trains were taking, by by the time that the trains on a regular basis were taking Jews to these death camps, When they would pass through certain cities in Germany, the people in the churches, they knew what was on those trains. And they arranged the service on Sunday so that when the trains would go by, they'd be singing hymns so they could not hear the cries of the people that were on the train. It's hard to imagine the pastor or whoever is leading the service Figuring out the train schedule and knowing that it was disturbing to hear the wails and the crying of these men, women, and children on these boxcars on their way to a death camp and knew that it would disturb the congregation. And so their response as Christians are, we need to be singing here so we can't hear that. That just defies explanation. And what he was convinced of is it had nothing to do with people being cowards or anything else. It had to do with this. They had a very low view of the grace of God, period. That's what it was. Cheap grace is just that. It's worth very little. Costly grace, however, is the treasure that's hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will gladly go and sell all that he has. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought after, a gift that must be asked for, and a door at which a person must knock. Again, he said this, Cheap grace means grace as a doctrine. It's a principle, a system. It means forgiveness of sins proclaimed as a general truth. The love of God taught as the Christian conception of God. It is an intellectual assent to that idea that is held to be of itself sufficient to secure remission of sins. In such a church, the world finds a cheap covering for its sins. No contrition is required, still less any real desire to be delivered from sin. Cheap grace, therefore, amounts to a denial of the living word of God. In fact, a denial of the incarnation of the word of God. Again, he uses the word cheap grace, and costly grace a great deal. Because again, he wanted them to understand that grace is costly because it costs a person his or her life. It is grace because it gives a person the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin. And grace because it justifies the sinner. Grace should be costly. It costs God the very life of God's own son. Remember that when it comes to the crucifixion of Jesus, what we have to be careful of, is we can sometimes think, we would never say this, but we, we begin to think that the death of Jesus was not that big of a deal. Now what I mean by that is, we know that Jesus came to die, we know that was his reason to die, we know that he's the Son of God, that he's God incarnate, and somehow, it's almost as if we imagine he was playing the part in a movie. And even though he suffered some real pain, in the end, he knew he was going to rise again. And so we almost dismiss it. And we almost dismiss the fact that there was a true horrific suffering and he really did die. He didn't depend to die, de- pretend to die. He died. His death was as horrific as anyone who's been crucified, who's been beaten. He experienced the rejection of God. It's a hard thing to grasp when it comes to who Christ is and the crucifixion and the Trinity and how all that works out. But however we work that in our mind, it never diminishes, not only who Christ is, but it doesn't diminish the suffering that he experienced and the very real death that he experienced on our behalf. Even with that, I can tell you this, and I know that most of you would probably think this way, maybe everyone, but if you told me that you said, Bob, if you give up one of your sons and we're going to torture him without mercy and give him the worst death possible. Now, we're going to raise him from the dead. But if you'll give up one of your sons so that those who hate you and others may be saved from hell, would you give us your son? No. Would you do that? You wouldn't do that. We wouldn't do that. So somehow we, we almost, it's almost as if we imagine this was easy for God because again, eh, he's going to raise him from the dead, not a big deal. And we need God to change our hearts on that. We, we need God to help us to understand and see clearly what took place and what happened. And that God didn't have to do any of that. He did it because he's good, because he loves us, because he cares for us. And it really is an amazing thing. So it should never be taken for granted. God's grace is given freely. It is given to those who ask and those who receive. When one asks and receives God's grace, not only do we receive God's grace, we also receive a call to follow Christ. Grace is costly because it compels a man to submit to the yoke of Christ. Christ said the yoke was easy, but it is a yoke nonetheless. And we ought to follow him. It is not that we take on Christ, but we go the way we want to go. We are yoked. If you see two oxen that are yoked together, they don't go where they independently want to go. They are forced to go in the same direction. With that in mind, we need to tell our children and our grandchildren and others that it is more important for them to be loyal to Christ than to be loyal to us. We need to teach them that. They are going to be loyal to us they are going to think that their relation with us is the most important relationship there is. It is important. But the relationship with Christ is of most importance. They need to see that in the way we live as well as what we say to them. We need them to understand that to be obedient to Christ is more important than them being obedient to us. We should make sure that they know that their relationship with the Lord is more important than anything else. That should be emphasized with whoever we disciple. Hundreds of churches do small groups in our country. Many, many churches experience in, in America experience a lot of problems in small groups. This usually isn't a problem or a big problem in other countries, but it can be a big problem in our country, and it often is. One of the main reasons for that, it's not the only reason, one of the main reasons is this is what often happens. When a small group meets those that are leading the small group or the individual who's leading the small group can at times become enamored with the fact that they are in charge and that people are listening to them. And as a result, they may begin to press certain things. Maybe press a particular pet peeve. You know, something that they constantly go back to. Something that they're just really vexed about. In the end, what changes subtly, but what does change nonetheless... Is that the most important aspect of the small group is the importance of following or being loyal to the leader? And it's not always portrayed that way, but that's how it comes across. And I have seen, in many, many cases, where small groups have caused churches to split, or where small uh, groups have, have moved off in another direction. It just, it just, it's weird how that happens. People leave a church because of a small group, whether the church officially have small groups or there are small groups it's an american problem has to do with our ego and a bunch of other garbage that goes on it's amazing and as a result of that these things can be a bad thing so if we are discipling as we ought to that needs to be what we expressed in the very beginning that we're loyal to christ period that's the most important relationship that's what matters more than anything else there are definitely benefits of being disciples of Jesus Christ. We know that the disciples had special privileges. And since they were, they were allowed to see things others did not see, they were allowed to hear things others did not hear. And as a result, they were becoming more like Christ in a very unique way. Remember Peter, James, and John uh, going up on what we call the Mount of Transfiguration. That was, a, that was an incredible thing. No one else had the opportunity to see what they saw and to hear what they heard. But it's for them, they were disciples of Christ. That didn't again mean they weren't going to suffer, because we know they suffered a great deal, especially later. But what we saw in the life of Jesus when he, when he worked with it, with these men is he did two, I guess, two main observations we can make. Number one is he did teach them systematically. There's no way to get around that. When you look at the Gospel of Matthew, and you look at the five major discourses that Jesus gave to his disciples. He talked to them about holy living. He talked to them about ministry. He talked them about bearing fruit in the nature of the kingdom of God. He talked to them about avoiding hypocrisy. And he even spoke to them about the end times. When you go to the book of Luke, it includes Jesus' journey to Jerusalem with his instruction on the themes of ministry, which is prayer, money, loving sinners, and the cost of being a disciple. In the upper room of John 14 through 16, Jesus taught about the Holy Spirit, abiding in Christ, the relationship with the Son of the Father, and suffering with Christ. Remember that when it comes to our job to disciple others, the church always is supplementing what we are doing. It supplements what we do with our children, and it even supplements what we do with, with, uh, with other disciples. We as a body and we as individuals need to be teaching others what we know to be true about the Bible. And that teaching should be coming from all of us. Even though there are those who have the gift of teaching, every single believer is tasked with teaching one-on-one What they know to others, at least to our children, you can at least explain to others what you know. And if you only know a little bit, then teach them all the little bit you know. Pass pass them on to someone else. But people need to hear the truth of God from many other people. Yes, they need to hear it from the pulpit, but we don't want them to get the idea that the guy in the pulpit is the only one who believes these things. They need to see. That what we call regular people, I hate doing that, but that's, what, you know, that's how it is. They need to see that regular people find these things fascinating and important as well. It has a great impact on their life when they see other Christians thinking about what has been taught and what the scripture says. You don't have the right to underestimate the power of that. Because, the, again, the Bible, as we have looked at, shows us that we are to be involved in this process with others. You'll be involved in this process more with some than with others. But we do need to make sure that we kind of have a plan at least in our head as to what we're going to teach our children. What we're going to teach those that we're trying to help. If your big thing is prayer and you hook up with a new believer then teach them what you are passionate about when it comes to prayer. But remember it's not about them following you and being loyal to you or praising you. When you've done that and maybe then let them go so to speak. Let them Hook up with somebody else so they can teach them those things that they find that are important and that they're passionate about. It's not about us gathering people around us so somehow we can get the glory. We want to pass on the truths that we have. We want to entrust them to other people. It's the job of the church as a whole, as well as the job of individuals. So we want to make sure that we are passing on those things to others as well when we're giving them advice as to how to deal with certain things, share with them how the gospel and thinking about the gospel has helped us face those things. That, that we have learned that when it comes to what others think of us, that we have found that to be a small thing. Not that it, didn't always, not that it was always that way, but now because I know who I am in Christ, and you can show them how important that is to you and what you've learned along the way. And pass that on, that, you know, the application of living out the truths of the Word of God because it's not doctrine here and living here. The, the two come together. And they need to see that in all of us. Remember the impact that I, I believe that I have. As I so, told you before, that I have talked to literally hundreds of inmates through the years. And I've asked them, many, many of them, if they, if they had any kind of association with the church. If they, if they can recall individuals that they knew who they would consider to be very solid, non-hypocritical Christians. Now, that's important. When I say a non-hypocritical Christian, it doesn't mean that they knew any Christians didn't sin, because we all sin. But the non-hypocritical Christian is the one who repents of his sin. The non-hypocritical Christian is the one who admits that they do wrong. He's the one that, or she's the one that's trying to change what they do. Not trying to cover what they do. They say, you know what, I just blew that. And you know, I've been working on that, and you know, whatever. I just, I, I can't overcome it. You're with another believer, and let's say, also you just let a few four-letter words fly. What are you going to do with that? Are you going to pretend it didn't happen? Because they heard you. Are you going to say, you know what? I am so sorry you heard that. I'm embarrassed. Because that really does bring shame to Christ. And I used to, and hopefully you can say this, I used to do that a whole lot more. And I don't do it as much, but that's no excuse. I should not, I, my heart should be changed enough that, that those things don't come out of my mouth. And they say, I, I need you to forgive me as well. Because I never want you to think for a moment that it's okay for a Christian to lose control and to talk like that. That's discipleship. That's what you're doing. And, you, and you're letting, and, you're, and you are helping them tremendously. We need to do that, and we don't do that. Not as often as we ought to. And that leads us to this, what I just gave you an illustration of is what some have called when Jesus taught occasionally, and they didn't mean that he occasionally taught. What that meant was that he taught truths when occasions arose. At at particular times of the day or or some some event took place, they used that as a teaching opportunity. Jesus did that, whether it was a a question from the crowd, whether it was when he came across a fig tree that wasn't blooming when it was supposed to, or by a mistake by one of his disciples. Jesus turned almost every situation into an opportunity to teach his disciples. That wasn't fake. He was living and breathing the Word of God. And if we are living and breathing the Word of God, it's not fake. In the same way, if you are an expert at carpentry and you're teaching someone how to do that, everything you do is a teaching opportunity. Not to do this, but to do it this way. I always do this. This is why I do this. Uh, I've learned to do this along the way. Uh, I always get this tool. Don't go buy that tool. I mean, everything you do is in the context of that, and everything you do is. Oh, you're always teaching, but you're doing it because you love it, because you love carpentry, you love what you're able to create, and you want to pass that on. So it's the same thing as a Christian. It's that it shouldn't be this forced thing? That again, we're some kind of a guru. The idea is that I'm just an average guy living the Christian life doing the best I can and I'm enamored with the Word of God and I'm applying more of it now than I used to in my life but I haven't applied all of it and I want to do a better job but it occupies my thinking. It occupies the way that I live and I just can't can't help but see things that God wants me to see and God wants me to do wherever I go and I want to pass it on to others because I wish I had learned this a long time ago. I don't know about you but I always feel like I'm 20 years behind what I should be i wish that i had known when i was 40 what i know now and i wish that i had known when i was 30 what i what i know now it's like dude, what a waste This makes me so angry at myself and i can't change that so i'm not going to sit around and feel sorry for myself i'm going to forge ahead and that's where we need to be as individuals which leads us to another thing that jesus did and that is jesus was always shepherding his disciples at the beginning of his, of his discipling, the main responsibility of Jesus' disciples was to watch and listen. They learned by sitting at their master's feet and watching how he handled various situations. At the end of particular incidents, they were given opportunities to ask questions. Mark chapter 7, verse 17, when he entered a house away from the crowd, his disciples asked him concerning the parable. When he commented from the side, he explained things to them. They would ask questions. He would prompt them to ask questions. So what he was doing as he shepherded them, he was shepherding their thinking. He was shepherding the way they reason, as well as shepherding them to guide them to proper conclusions. We need to do that with those that we disciple. We need to do that with our children and our grandchildren. We need to shepherd their thinking so they would think correctly. This isn't brainwashing. What this is is helping them to think broadly. We want them to think in the terms of what the scripture gives us to absorb everything and to ask questions in light of, to think about things in light of what the scripture says. Everything. And if it isn't everything, then then what do we think about God and the Bible? We think that it's minor. Should we kind of shuffle off to the side? And this should be our life. And that's what we want to pass on. The disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray. So like John taught his disciples, Jesus gave them a sample prayer. He added some parables to open their understanding about real prayer. In these private and personal times, he dealt with the issues of their heart. He, he confronted selfish ambitions. Remember in Mark 33, it says, Then he came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What was it uh, you disputed among yourselves on the road? But They kept silent, for on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. He didn't ignore that. He launched into it. He tested their affections. He affirmed the things they had learned. Sharing the good news of salvation was woven through their entire discipleship experience from the very beginning to the very end. In Mark chapter 1 beginning in verse 17 it says, Then Jesus said to them, Follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And they immediately left their nets and followed him. They kind of knew what he meant but they didn't. But he taught them what that meant. As disciples of Christ they were to be fishers of men. That is, disciples who made disciples. That is what the Lord wants all of us to do. We won't dwell on it, but Jesus encouraged the twelve to attempt various things as well. As we looked at all these things, we've seen that we are to cover a lot of different subjects with those that we disciple. And again, when I I use that term very broadly, that may be with a non-believer that we're discipling. It may be with a brand new believer. Maybe with just a believer who knows less than we do. It definitely may be our children. It should be our children, our grandchildren, those that are close to us. We've talked about how it's important for us to pass on what the Bible teaches about humility, self sacrifice, and unconditional love. That we are to teach them how to be committed to serving God, that they should be receiving and sharing the gospel with joy, that they are to be pursuing holy living, that they are to be uh, showing hospitality that they are to be against being divisive, that they shouldn't be speaking maliciously of others. And of course, what we emphasized uh, one Sunday was we want to make sure that we are infusing them with this idea that we are going to be called to suffer for Christ. That whole idea of uh, peer pressure, it's just a form of suffering. Because what that is, is, is the peer pressure is to put pressure on you to conform to their way of thinking, because if you don't, they're going to what? Mock you. Or they're going to reject you. That is a form of suffering. It may not be the kind of suffering, that other, the extreme suffering that others are experiencing throughout the world, but it is suffering nonetheless and it's actually pretty very powerful. And we need to be ready as believers. We need to get our children ready for that. If they can't handle simple mockery, how are they going to handle it when they begin to come for our lives? And I don't know when we say that. It's very difficult for us to understand what that means because we don't experience that. It's not our experience here in this country. And I don't think it's going to be our experience in two years. Maybe in 10. Maybe in 20, if the Lord tarries, I don't know. But they also need to be ready for that because what if God is calling your child to be a a missionary in another country? That's going to, you know, most other countries, compared to our country, they're just dangerous anyway. And others that are much more so. I know I read this. Uh, stat that when it came to, there was a, a, a six different churches where they all agreed to take part of it in a study. And real simple, they were given a questionnaire, and the questionnaire would be followed up in six months with another one. The first questionnaire was had all to do about a lot of different topics, but in there, which was the real study, which they weren't going to tell them what it was, was about missions and their attitude about missions and missionaries. And in that, Uh, a very high percentage, over 90% of those who answered the question said they thought that mission work was vitally important, that they would, that they themselves were huge supporters of missionary work and even supported missionaries themselves. And there's all kinds of questions related to that that was embedded in this larger thing about Christianity. Six months went by and there was another questionnaire that came out that was similar and people thought that, they, that, that when they would answer the questions, it was to see how their views maybe had changed. But there was a little change in some of the questions when it came to missions. And a few questions were there. They weren't in the first one. And then they included in the questions on missions was this. If your son or daughter believed they were being called by God to serve as a missionary and they listed a few countries, would you support that? And there were several questions like that in there. The 90% that were in favor of missions and that it was vitally important and that it was what God wants his people and his church to do suddenly changed to when it came to your children, the support for missions and mission work dropped to 30%. Because now it's much closer to home. I'll gladly send your child I will support your child going with even more money. I think my child might be misguided i don 't think my child is really being called by God to go serve in Afghanistan or Iraq or Jordan or even Ethiopia. They need to grow mature. I think that they were they were moved emotionally and they really weren 't thinking it through. God has gifted my child so greatly, and these are the things i just don 't see how that if they have the gifting here, that God would call them to go there. They would not be able to use the gift that God's given them. And on it goes. It's pretty astounding. We need to make sure that we have the proper attitude, that we treat other believers as equals. Realizing that to be a discipler is not a spiritual gift. We don't need any special gifting to disciple another person. We need to have the willingness to invite people to imitate us, to come alongside of us and grow together. That if we don't set the pattern of our own life before others, there's nothing else that we can do. That it is appropriate for us to choose others, to disciple them. It's not wrong to do so. In fact, I would even say this, that you know, my wife and I are very blessed and fortunate. We have nine grandchildren, and uh, my grand- most of my grandchildren have other sets of grandparents as well, depending on who's alive and who's dead, obviously. But in my oldest son, uh, his wife's parents are Christians as well. And my desire to influence my grandchildren for Christ is not about me trying to find another way to get them close to the papa. Could that be wrong? I want them to be influenced by their other grandparents as well because they know the Lord. They're different than we are. And it might be a good thing. It probably is. But it's not about trying to gain the ground in that way. I really want them to embrace the gospel of Christ I want them to embrace what the Bible says about living life. I want them to think the way that the Bible tells us to think so they can be saved from the unbelievable deception that's out there. I want to clearly communicate to them that the most important relationship is not my relationship with them or theirs with me. That is the relationship with the Lord and that it must supersede all other relationships, period. I want to make sure that I have opportunities to teach them truth systematically. Review in my head, what have I shared, what have I not shared? What do I need to repeat? What's going on today in the world that I, that I can draw parallels from Scripture so I can emphasize certain things? I want to be able to do that. I want to use all kinds of situations and opportunities to teach them about life, about God, about the gospel. I definitely want to shepherd the way they think. I want to protect the way they think. Because that is where the attack comes. The world wants them to think differently. The world wants them to be illogical and irrational. The world wants them to divide up truth the way that the world does. Where when it comes to religion and opinion and myth, that's all in one category. Because it doesn't really matter what you believe about religion. It all just leads to the same place anyway. But that the real truth of science and all the rest, that's what they need to be rooted in. I want them to know that that's a lie. And I want to convince them. I want them to know that I'm convinced of this and why I'm convinced of this. So they can think logically. So they can think biblically. It's the same thing, I believe. So that their minds can be, can be honoring to God. So it's not clouded by just the mess that's out there much less all the other things that come through the body, all the various lusts that we have to fight and deal with. If you and I are not going to shepherd the way they think, who will do it? Well, the world has stepped up to the plate. They are more than willing, and they have already started. The onslaught has continued since the day your child was born, since the day your grandchild was born. It continues in the life of those who have come to Christ even recently. The onslaught of the world doesn't give anyone a break. And so we must be on our guard and we must use the minds that God has given us according to the word of God. That's why we must disciple each other. We want to disciple each other's children. We should want that. Yes, I want my child to be influenced by that person. Yes, I want my child to be influenced by that person. Because who is influencing your child the most? so we want, we want to engage in that activity. God has called you and I to do that. So this is not about you and I, well, when the Lord calls me, I'll be ready. You need to be ready right now because God's already called you to do it. And so we need to begin to pray. First of all, you want to begin to pray that God would help you to seize opportunities that he gives you. Now, if you have children at home, he's actually already answered your prayer. They're running around. And so you, you can begin today. You will do it imperfectly, just so you know that. You will, and you will blow it. But perfection isn't the requirement here. It's obedience. We do the best that we can. We don't do the best we can and use it as a phrase to excuse our laziness. Because we do that a lot of times. First time I tried out for a real football team, I got cut. It was a horrible experience. Unbelievably embarrassing. I needed to be cut. It was the best thing that ever happened to me. And I even said, the first day after being cut, I don't know what happened. I did everything I could. That was a lie. I hadn't done everything I could. So two days later, I decided I would do everything I could. And so that's when I started training for the next year. Because that's what that meant. If I'm going to make the team, I need to start training now. Football season, I'm not on the team. I've already lost it, but I'm going to start training now. And so we need to make sure that we do that. And God will honor that. Discipleship can be boiled down to this. I think it was Mark Dever. He's a pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church. Terrific guy. I think he's the one that came up with this. I'm not positive. But it's just a great simple phrase so that discipleship does not become this daunting thing that we think we can't do. He says all it is is this. It's meeting up with somebody for their spiritual good. That's what it is. Simply meeting up with someone else for their spiritual good. You can do that when you go fishing. You can do that when you go to a ball game. You can do that when you're taking someone else to the doctor. You can do that when you're working in the yard. You can do that when you're doing all kinds of things. Just simply meeting up with others for their spiritual benefit. That's what it is. And if we begin to do that, I think we will begin to see a lot of incredible growth and changes beginning in the lives of those that we love the most and God will be well pleased. That will be honoring God. And God, I do believe, will honor our efforts. Let's pray. I follow in the heaven. We thank you so much again just for all the things that we have looked at over the course of several weeks now about discipleship. And Lord, as we kind of wrap these things up, I pray that you would press this responsibility very heavily upon our hearts and minds. I do ask that if we are not consciously doing this, I pray that if necessary that you would press us with an overwhelming feeling of guilt. I pray that there would be a a sense that we are wasting time. I pray that we would feel like we are rejecting you and that we are walking away from our responsibilities. I pray that you would impress it on us until we repent. And as we then begin to strive, and for all those who are seeking to strive now, how I pray that you will bless them tremendously. I pray that they will experience the great joy as they seek to impress upon others the joy of following you and thinking about you, as they themselves review the truths of the Word of God to pass on to others. I pray you bless our efforts. I pray, Lord, that it will be something that we do as natural as breathing. Because, Father, we know that if you do not bless our feeble efforts, then that will be a waste of time as well. And so, Father, we acknowledge our weakness and our failures and ask, Lord, that you would enable us, that you would strengthen us, that you would motivate us. We pray, Lord, that we would see some of the rewards even now. And, Father, we will know that we will be encouraged that all is not lost. And, Father, for those who still have children at home, I do pray that you would give to each one of them a great sense of urgency. That they would have a sense that the world does want to devour their children. And whether the world devours their children now or devours them when they're young adults. That we are in this fight. And I pray that you would help us to be successful in teaching them and living out the word of God. That they may embrace the gospel and live strongly that they would not waver regardless of what comes. That we may know on the day, the day that comes that when we pass on from this life that we will be assured that they are walking with you, that they are strong in the faith. We pray, Lord, that you would allow us to have that. And so, Father, we thank you for your willingness to forgive us of our failures and our shortcomings. Thank you, Lord, for not throwing us away or for condemning us. Thank you, Father, that our children still love us. Thank you, Lord, that we still have many open doors of opportunity to to influence them and others. Help us, Father, to be all that we are to be, that in every facet of our life we will live to your glory. We thank you, and we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.